Okay, perfect. So I want to start by saying thank you for writing this book. I really feel like it's something that the world needs and actually I need and needed and have really benefited from and appreciated reading. And it feels like it spoke so directly to me actually, and I'm sure to many others. So I just want to start with that and say, thank you for putting this book out in the world. Thank you so much. That, that really means a lot. And I know that you face this day in, day out over decades and of course have emotions about it. So if it speaks to you um, in its rawness, that's like the greatest thing I can hope for. Cause I mainly wrote it for people who like me were just grappling and felt like we weren't having the conversations about this aspect of the climate crisis, which was um, bizarrely, we've just been bizarrely silent on it for so long. So I'm really glad that it made sense to you in that way. <laughs> totally. And I think it opens up so many powerful conversations and it's just so validating. I think I wanted to hear more about your journey and in particular, because I mean, from reading the book, it sounded like to me, you were doing something quite different before and had this pretty major life reorientation around the climate crisis. And that that was partly motivated by just your discussions and and ponderings and decisions around deciding to have a baby, but also I'm sure other factors that felt in and like played into that. And I guess I'm asking because I feel like so many people are at that point in the journey where they're kind of waking up to the crisis and wondering, should I quit my job? Should I completely reorient? How, you know, dramatically do I need to realign what I'm doing? And it felt to me like you've done some pretty major realignment. So I guess I wanted to hear how, what motivated you in that and how that went and any bumps in the road or sort of what enabled it you to make that transition? Yeah, it has been a major realignment for me and it wasn't clear as it was happening that it would necessarily go this way. But essentially, as I'm very open about in the book, I faced very extreme ego anxiety and grief and anger that popped up around this question of whether or not I feel comfortable bringing a child into the climate crisis when we know we're going to have to bear the consequences of historic inaction, no matter how great we are at mustering our collective force to address the crisis now. And the the pain of that um, burst through all the defenses I had left to really tamper down how serious this threat was or what it would mean for my life and the people that I love, as well as all the people around the world who are already on the front lines um, in ways that I am not. And really reckoning with what that meant for me as a privileged person who was feeling this distress on such, a, such an existential level that if, if I'm feeling this way, what about the people who already have the climate crisis breathing down their backs right now? Um, it's not some future orientation. Um, not that it's ever a just future orientation for me either. I live in California. You know it very well, of course, um, with wildfires there, for example. But um, that caused a, a reckoning and a, a need to do something with the emotions that was constructive because I was falling into an abyss of really dark feelings, like the terror and depression. And it was rubbing off on people I was closing to, like closest to such as my partner, you know, not being able to really um, muster hope and optimism and 
alternative ideas that are also true about the future that as we move forward and it's going to be challenging, there's also lots of capacity and um, opportunity to inject it with joy and, you know, our collective courage and just, you know, all the love that is already around to make being alive beautiful. All that was kind of diminishing for me in my narrow, my narrow focus on the future was becoming tighter and tighter. And I needed to do something to broaden it out again. And, and um, working on this book allowed me to, to do that by bringing in lots of other perspectives that were not just my own, but from many different kinds of people, many different kinds of experts, people who have been living with existential threat for a long time, for which the fact that they don't feel like the world is a safe place is nothing new. Um, and I realized that I can I can take these emotions and really have this reckoning and, and think that, okay, it, it creates bridges for solidarity. It, it creates bridges for courage and commitment to using the power that I do have to refocus my work and my time and energy towards um, protecting mental health in the climate crisis uh, and no longer relying on my kind of soft denial tendencies to turn away from the crisis out of self-protection, which a lot of us unwittingly do and it's very natural. Um, but basically when it, my ego anxiety became so severe that I couldn't, couldn't really do that anymore. It was, it was ultimately a productive thing because it meant that I could have this reckoning of, of how to turn the, the difficulty into something meaningful. And in psychology speak, it is called meaning focused coping to, um, be able to essentially do what someone like Viktor Frankl with man's search for meaning tells us about you know, surviving Nazi concentration camps um, and, you know, inhumane torture and abuse for many years, he was able to psychologically foment his vision of the future by tapping into uncertainty, uncertainty, because it wasn't written in stone whether he was going to be killed. And he could hold on to that uncertainty as a, as a potential for an opening in the future for good things to happen. And what would be most meaningful for him was to reunite with his wife or, um, you know, be able to go and lecture about his theory that man's search for meaning even in suffering is what drives us and allows us to keep going and that that potential did nourish him and keep him going and I and you know there are many other such examples and I think this kind of coping is relevant for the climate crisis and you know the uncertainty about how bad it's going to get doesn't need to be something we're just fearful of it can actually be a huge leveraging tool for getting to work and opening up the future and being our best, most caring, compassionate selves, applying morality to, to our lives and um, essentially quitting my old field of work, coming to work on climate issues, made everything feel a lot more purposeful. It was start helping me to address the threat that was stressing me. And at the same time, um, you know, being part of that solution with others then helps me internally cope. So through all that, I ended up feeling comfortable enough to have a baby for a lot of other reasons um, in addition to what we've just chatted about. But I don't think I would have been able to arrive there had I been left to my own ruminations, had I not connected with others over this distress, had I not validated it and learned that there's nothing um, to be ashamed of, of course, and that it's a sign of health and that you care. And, and it's this wonderful um, platform now for, for connecting with others and allowing the grief to really teach you things and, and change you and reorient you to the world as it is right now. Yeah. 
Okay, there's so much there I want to pick up on. Um, first, long-winded, I'm, I'm sorry. Long, long answer. Oh, that, I mean, I feel like that was such a summary of many of the key points of the book. I mean, what, how did you practically switch careers? Or, I mean, you were working in yeah. communication, right? So what tools or skills did you bring with you? And what did you have to pick up and learn in order to make the switch that you did? Yeah, so I've always been an interdisciplinary scholar. I was embedded in this field of synthetic biology, which is the attempt to make biology easy to engineer. And I was there as a communication scholar looking at you know, the ethical and social implications of this human attempt to bend life into the forms that are convenient for us and make living creatures do convenient things. Um, and you know, I just finished my PhD in that. I, I was doing some consulting work with synthetic biology companies and I left all of that because of the severity of my climate emotions and feeling like I have to work on this. Um, therefore, I need to develop knowledge in this space that I haven't been researching, right? Um, of course, I had my communication skills. I'd been a broadcaster for a decade doing radio and some TV and lots of podcast production and hosting. And that meant that I could bring a storytelling angle, but the climate world was new to me. You know, I remember coming across your work very early as, as an expert in this space and I had to get familiar with all the key players and um, you know, the, the right places to be reading and how to get up to snuff um, evidence base uh, conceptions not only of the wider ecological crisis, but also its impacts on mental health, because that was my, my key interest. Um, and so just doing some grunt work, a lot of reading, a lot of um, interviewing to try and muster up close to, you know, what a PhD level base of knowledge would be if you had done all those literature reviews, right, to know what you're talking about. So that took some years. Um, I started by making a one hour long radio documentary for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that examined this intersection of reproductive anxiety and the climate crisis, just to see if there was enough there to, to go deeper for a book. Um, you know, making a one hour long documentary demands a lot of research and interviewing. So that then led to me understanding, okay, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. The psychological impacts are way bigger than this reproduction piece and hugely intertwined with inequality and an injustice. Um, and so we need to have an intersectional approach to looking at it. That went into a book proposal. Book proposals take a long time to research and write. I ended up interviewing more than a hundred people uh, for, for the book and, and the documentary and, and just kind of on background and also for key interviews to share in the book. And my reading list grew and you know, books take a long time to write. And over the course of that time, basically a four-year period, I had come into a new space, developed new colleagues. I started by being often the journalist knocking on their door asking for an interview, but then I eventually, um, through my coping, actually Good Grief Network is something I write about in the book. They run this 10-step program for helping people harness their climate grief and transform it into meaningful actions at this time. And I remember one of the exercises that they focused on with us, there was a step about cultivating your own awareness of your own agency, increasing your self-efficacy, the belief that 
your actions, even if they are small, do matter and that you always have something available to you, even though it's so easy to feel like you're helpless in this crisis. And there was an exercise that involved some writing. And through that writing, it, it was revealed to me that I, I wanted to focus on protecting well-being of the younger generations, of, of youth in particular, who are feeling and communicating such despair that is often largely dismissed and belittled by the culture at large, and especially by older generations. And that was really troubling me. And so then um, I did some work with a group called the Radical Support Collective. They helped me kind of further flesh out this idea of what it could look like for me to get involved with supporting youth with my, my research. And then I learned about this postdoc um, at Stanford University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine that was about addressing the health impacts of the climate crisis. They weren't talking about mental health in the proposal, but I got in touch with them to say, you know, in your call out, you're not talking about mental health, you're talking more about vector-borne diseases, for example, um, and many other kinds of impacts, but uh, would you consider an application on mental health? And they said that they would. And so um, one thing led to another and they eventually accepted me. And then it was through that postdoc, I was able to come in and, and more in an organized, um, formalized way, put my academic research in this new burgeoning field of climate and mental health. And, and often the people that I was interviewing for the book then became my colleagues and, and the rest is kind of history. So now I'm, I can actually officially say that I've changed my career, um, but it takes a while to, I think, make those kinds of transitions. I'm curious what your advice would be for people who are wondering if they should change career or if they should stay in their old career and um, orient it more towards addressing the climate crisis within their current sphere. Yeah, I think that's a, a really potent question. Not everyone can afford to change their career. And I, I understand that it can be too difficult. The demands on your day to day, maybe you have kids to feed or loans to pay off or who knows what it is. Um, so certainly don't wanna blanket it as something that everyone should consider doing. But if you do have the flexibility um, and if it's something that you could see a way through, even though it's challenging and daunting, I would highly encourage you to consider doing it and think seriously about what it might take to get you from A to B because we, need, we are at a moment, we need a billion climate activists, we just do. Like it's that serious, obviously. Um, and climate activism can look like so much in terms of change making and using your daytime, those hours. It's the most powerful time. You're not sleeping. You're not doing the other kind of domestic responsibility duties you might have. It's you know this this livelihood space to channel our energies towards something that really matters. And it helps with the greater movement. It helps protect the things that you're worried about. But importantly, it really helps you brush the BS aside and, and choose something that you think is most existentially purposeful and meaningful for you. If the climate is the thing that is calling you to consider this, that means that you know it has that potential for you. Um, and there's so many ways to connect because the crisis touches everything and all of the different ways that we are active in society professionally can enhance the collective action um, of, of you know, moving towards this just transition that we, that we want uh, to create the better alternative futures than the ones we otherwise expect coming at us. So it's just this tremendous opportunity. And I think it just, it's, 
it's not an either or thing. It's going to both help you and help help the movement. If you can make those shifts, I think it's a time to be courageous about doing things differently and it'll help you feel more alive. Like that's what I've, that's what I'm finding in this work. It really puts an extra oomph in my step. Um, and that's super enjoyable. And then you're working with other committed, lively people, you know, and you support each other through the tough stuff. And um, it's one of those things that on your deathbed, you know, it helps increase the satisfaction of that reflection time on how you've used your time. So yeah, I think it's a really important thing. It's a, it's, it's great as, as one of these big ideas for how to live at this time, given one's climate awareness, tapping into it through professional change is really powerful. Thank you. That's great advice. I also would love to hear you talk more about these concepts that you talk about in the book and you touched on them just now of embracing uncertainty and seeing the possibility in uncertainty. And I mean, you talk about imagining the worst and getting in touch with your potential survivor. So not avoiding, you know, the worst case scenarios and possible outcomes, but also not ruminating and dwelling on things that haven't happened yet and that might not happen and that we have some possibility of changing and preventing from happening. So I guess what was so refreshing to me about that is you were so clear that, you know, things are going to keep getting worse, at least for a while. That is, and that is what the science tells us, right? Like th there is some more warming headed our way and how much depends on what we do now and how quickly we're able to mobilize. But it's quite tough to know that that external circumstance is going to worsen. But I, so how do you, in practical terms, how do you use that information and kind of acknowledge and live with that information but also use it as a leverage point, as you mentioned, and, and find that space for, you know, seeing alternatives within uncertainty. Yes, binaries are really inadequate for facing up to the climate crisis and moving through it in a way that can really encapsulate the complexity of what we're dealing with. So, only focusing on the scary stuff, of course, um, can really foreclose your idea of what's possible. It can lead you to the self-fulfilling prophecy of doomism, the belief that action is futile and then you don't take it. And that of course is going to lead more to that kind of negative consequence. Um, but there is this really liberatory aspect of knowing that you know things are getting harder and there's a process of grieving that can come with really owning up to that but understanding that it will only get as bad as we let it and that we all are tiny drops individually which can make it the powerlessness feel really tough to bear but that we are needed in this tidal wave of change and that your do your drop is as important as everyone else's drop and required right now and it's okay, we can survive more losses. You know, it's it's horrific and it's not the way that we want to wake up, but it's it's happening. And it doesn't mean that then we're full blown to it being too late. And we have to get comfortable in that tension of it not being ideal, but also knowing that there's still so much capacity we have to prevent harm and support each other and live meaningful, beautiful lives. And so then we have to sit in the gray space and we have to reject the binaries and we have to think really 
deeply and carefully about what we can do to support ourselves to stretch our window of tolerance for uncertainty and um, hold hold that tension of the, the things we hope for and then the things that we're afraid of and know that they're both um, true dynamics of the climate crisis. And so it's this idea of the prospective survivor that you mentioned, it comes from Robert J. Lifton, the psychiatrist who talks about, you know, he studied atrocities of the 20th century, the atomic bomb and, um, you know, communist thought reform in China or Nazis and how, how people can seemingly turn on an eye away from evil and accept evil acts. But um, he says that like real survivors, of course, are people who have touched death, but made it out alive. Um, and the prospective survivor is something different. It's where we imagine so viscerally how we might die and get shaken to the core by that feeling, which is what a lot of eco-anxiety invites people to do. Um, they're not necessarily dealing with conflict over dwindling resources driven by drought and migration crises, let's say, um, but that's what they're imagining. And, you know, fantasies of mothers having to chill, kill their own children is coming up in the therapy room, for example, um, for climate aware therapists as a, as a compassionate way to prevent suffering of their children. I mean, these are really terrifying thoughts and feelings, but um, they're not happening right in the moment. But the, the vision of it allows you to, to have that experience, which then can be very clarifying about, okay, um, we can't hope for a better future by sitting in our living rooms and, and expecting that someone will come and, and make a better pathway forward. We actually have to get to work with each other and use that motivation from our fear to jolt us into meaningful action. Um, and then once you act, you actually do produce the hope that you want. Um, so it's, it's a robust form of hope, which comes from rolling up our sleeves and earning the hope rather than simply having the hope. And that's why these emotions are really powerful, but you can't focus so much on the negative that you burn out and get lost in the bottom of the U-shaped curve where you're just so despondent. Like I had felt for a while, um, you have to find ways of digging yourself out and focusing on the nourishing things that are also true. And um, being able to have like flexible thinking and bare cognitive dissonance, which is uncomfortable, but having two opposing thoughts or feelings in you at the same time. And um, we can do that. That's the cool thing is that you can actually move through the worst forms of the despair that comes with this. And, and a lot of that comes with like a psychoeducation piece, being aware of these feelings and how they might be affecting you and knowing that you're not alone in them and then finding some ways of, of becoming more flexible towards all the, all the possibilities of being a prospective survivor who, who sees and feels hope as well as doesn't lose contact with the, the fear. Hmm. What do you think, I mean, how can, I think there's a lot of debate at least on climate Twitter about the role of emotions and sort of, I would say oversimplified um, takes on, you know, this emotion or this affect will elicit this action, or we should communicate in this way because it will produce this result. What mm -hmm. does your work and experience tell you about emotion as a tool more in reaching out to others after processing it yourself, as we've been talking about? Yeah, I think that Emotions are incredibly powerful places to meet each other and to have to let our guards down and to really 
use the power of vulnerability to come together and relate in deeply moving ways uh, around this crisis, especially given that we've often, you know, just been exposed to it through scientific evidence and technological ambition and policy proposals and political fights. Um, and so there's also this superhuman element, this intimate element, this way in which it's living in our bodies with feelings um, or in our dreams, you know, and that's becoming all the more evident for more and more people. And so there's a power to that emotion, emotional space, but it doesn't mean that we understand the secret sauce of which emotions to deploy at certain points in time to create a certain outcome of behavior change. Uh, those are understandable questions that people want answers to, um, but we don't have like a, a great toolkit that is able to be, you know, just used and repeated with the same outcome every time with all individuals. We have different values and beliefs and experiences that we filter information through as well as emotional communication through, and then we make of it what we do according to those subjectivities. And so it's really complex and it can be also pretty manipulative to try and wield emotions in a very specific way for our intended effect. Um, but rather if we can have authentic sharing, you know, we can probably get more buy-in on a deep, deep level and commitment because people are moved. Not only it, it's, it's about engaging more than just the rational mind. It's about integrating the rational with the irrational and the fact that, you know, we make decisions from emotional perspectives more often than the rational ones anyway. Humans are super irrational. So um, I've really tried to, again, take a non-binary approach to the importance of an emotion like fear or hope or, you know, um, courage or sadness or whatever it is, because I think all these emotions have important things to, to show us right now, to teach us, and that we have to get better at feeling them and letting them come through us and move through us and teach us things as they do move through us, but basically just not get stuck in any one dire place. And um, yeah, hold hold the tension of the conflictedness. And I know that this can be really unsatisfying for people because we like answers and we like to think in binary terms that allow us to just have some cognitive ease, but that's just not... <laughs> That's just not what's on deck with the climate crisis. And so instead, I think we have to find the balance in this, what I call the matrix of feelings, where we're not um, so hypervigilant with stress about what may come and what's already happening, that we are just only reactive and hypervigilant and, and rigid. Um, but we're also not naively optimistic and, and letting, you know, letting down the urgency to act and be creative at this time, but we can kind of balance and, and move forward with the best of our cognitive capacities. We know a lot about how stress affects the body, losing contact with our prefrontal cortex, things like that that are in the book. And we need to be able to ground ourselves and our nervous systems in ways that we, we don't lose contact with um, that higher order executive functioning as it's called. And uh, yeah, uh, so, so yeah, all the emotions I think are really important. Any practical tips on how to exist in those non-binary uncomfortable gray spaces i mean to expand to flex that muscle and work on that skill yeah yeah so the um thing i hear from a lot of people that's super painful for them is is that they feel like they live in this split world like they've had their climate awakening 
And um, one part of them is just so alert to the horrific things that are barreling at us and paying attention to human suffering and conflict and, you know, really strange geopolitics and just very scary events, in addition to the disasters and climate tipping points. And, you know, it's, it's there all the time. At the other time, for example, let's say a, a parent is then playing with their child and enjoying, reveling in the innocence of toys and a nice walk in the park and the sky isn't falling and, you know, the sun is shining and that split sense of self can be really, really difficult to reconcile within an individual and, um, or, you know, a colleague of mine who's a, a climate scientist studying the impact of climate change on, on forests, like, you know, biking to the lab in Matt in, in an N95 mask because of forest fires, um, you know, just the surrealness of his, his research now coming on top of his everyday experience of going to do the research, but then going home to like a party for his girlfriend's birthday. And just the, that split sense of self can be really, really a difficult place to, um, to find oneself. And I felt it for a long time too. And something that has really helped me is meditation and being able to really um, ground oneself in the present moment is huge. And I think that why meditation and mindfulness are so helpful as tools for a lot of anxiety and depression, not just that, which is climate induced, um, is that it, it really is working with this interesting psychosomatic relationship where the body can affect the mind and the mind can affect the body. And you can focus on what is real in this moment um, without, of course, going out and losing tracks of thoughts into, into, you know, whatever hypothetical things that are rational to worry about. Um, but beyond that, it also brings you into the kinds of non-dualistic nature of reality, meditating on the fact that there has always been joy and suffering in the world there, like inextricable. Um, and there's a lot of guidance and wisdom in communities that are focused on mindfulness, which are often spreading out from kind of Buddhist philosophies and things like that, which have thousands of years of, of thinking and feeling behind that can be really healing and therapeutic. Um, and then there's just other, like when we're at our edge, we need to know how to pay attention to that. If we're, um, for some people, it might be spinning catastrophic thoughts about the climate crisis for others might not be sleeping very well, or, you know, eating too much or too little, or, these kinds of things, when you notice you're moving outside of your window of tolerance, it's important to be able to take a step back and think about the basics. Like, what are you eating? How much are you sleeping? All the things for well-being that we know are important. Have you been able to exercise, connect with someone you love? And um, of course, there's mindfulness meditation and yoga but, and self-care. And like the idea that, you know, black feminists like Audre Lorde tell us that self-care is a political act. Um, because we have to fill ourselves up, fill our cup up to be able to take on the external struggles that we need to push against um, and pull together with others towards. Um, and we can't do that if we're depleted or if we're feeling, you know, so rattled that we're just not our best selves. So we can't, you know, there's a lot of urgency in this crisis, but I, I tr like in the book, I try to urge against this knee-jerk reaction to only do external action all the time, which is what 
kind of the baseline understanding would have us do um, because it can risk leaving us burning out and not being nourished in the ways that we need to for the, for the long haul of, you know, caring and staying with the trouble of this crisis over the rest of our lives. Um, so, so you will know what's good for you. Uh, everyone will understand. Some people might be cooking or gardening or, or who knows, um, you know, there's climate aware therapy. There's, there's all kinds of different things people are turning to now. There's the whole cottage industry of coaches and support groups just to have a containing setting where people will validate these concerns and connect over them. And all of that is becoming increasingly important as well as the external action. Yeah, well said. I'm aware of time. So maybe my last question would be to hear about your hopes and dreams for the book. What is the impact that you hope this book can contribute to? Thank you for the question. I, I hope for a few things, I hope it can be a bit of a salve for people who find themselves on the harsher end of the spectrum of, of climate distress, um, a way of stepping out of isolation and towards some, you know, understanding and connection with others over how they're feeling and ways of transforming them those difficult feelings into something that's more constructive for them and ideally constructive for the planetary health crisis. But I also really want to put um, on the map that we need to think deeply about shifting the way in which we address mental health care in society at large at a policy level, um, that the one-on-one -on -one biomedical model is not enough. It already isn't enough to deal with the mental health fallout of the pandemic, for example, where there aren't enough therapists to help people in need, but also it's expensive, right? Um, and a lot of those in need in the climate crisis are typically the most disadvantaged and historically marginalized communities. Um, and therapy is inaccessible. It's, it's not something that is affordable. And so there are solutions. We do have opportunities to adapt models from global mental health, where we know about getting mental health into low resource settings, for example, training peer counselors and lay workers and really exploding that biomedical model of expertise and sharing the, the skills that others without psychological expertise can actually take up and internalize and then really effectively help others in their community, even sometimes more effectively than primary care providers because they are you know, trusted, like-minded people from that place. Um, and we, there's clinical trials that show how effective this can be. And I, I really hope to alert um, decision makers to the fact that we have choices about how we're going to react in the face of these choiceless events, like how dangerous the climate crisis is now, even though we can still prevent harm and, uh, and help bring, a, bring about more effective ways of, of preventing harm to mental health and supporting communities to be resilient, to deal with disasters and, and recover afterward. So um, that would be great if, if anyone who is working in these spaces and, and maybe connected to change making at a policy level can pick up the book and start having these conversations um, with their colleagues, but otherwise I just want to, I just want to help contribute to a global conversation that's unfurling about climate emotions and their importance and what we can do to use them adaptively. Thank you so much, Britt. I'll stop the recording there. It was a wonderful time to chat.